we are in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, and we are talking about the faith race. And as we think about our faith race, just because you haven't been here, I want to go ahead and do a little bit of a, some of you haven't been here, I want to do a little bit of a a quick overview of Hebrews 1 through 11. Because at the beginning of chapter 12, it says, therefore. So you have to understand what, it, what it's there for. I mean, what is he talking about? So remember, Hebrews was written to three groups of people, a group that was all in. They had be, been regenerate by the Holy Spirit. Uh, one group, that first subgroup, they were all in, but they were struggling. They were getting persecuted. They, they were wanting to, you know, defect back. And so the writer's writing to encourage them to stay into that race of faith and keep fighting. And then there's a second group who's intellectually bought in. Some of them are posers. Some of them may just not be to the point where they've yielded all their heart. You cannot come to Christ and have him regenerate your heart, giving him 99.5% of your heart. You can't reject his lordship. And you only want his saviorhood. You can't. You, those are two sides of one coin. And, and, and so sometimes people come to Christ and they say, I'll give you this much, but I don't give you all of it. He takes all of your heart and he takes away the stony heart and he replaces it with a fleshly heart. But you have to give him it all. All of at least what you know about your heart at that time. And so there's that second group that hasn't done that. And so... He's challenging them in the book with five warnings to come to Jesus. Don't let the world pull you away. Come to Jesus. And so the first warning's in chapter 2 where he says, don't drift away from the message and keep coming back to that message. Jesus is supreme. He's supreme to everything. Supreme to angels, to Moses, to the sacrificial system, to Abraham, to Joshua. He's supreme to it all. He's the high priest, he says in chapter 4. And so he is the one that makes it possible for you to be in right relationship with God. And then the second warning he gives in chapter 3 says, don't harden your heart like the children of Israel did. And he quotes from Psalm 95, which is referencing Exodus 17 and on, where the children of Israel looked at God and they said, do you really care? Are you really with us? They didn't have faith, even though God had already proved himself over and over and over again. They got a hard heart. And they were many, many times, they were called out for that in the Old Testament. Then third warning is in chapter 5 and 6. And the third warning says, don't waver, be all in. By now you should be teaching, but instead you still need milk. You're not maturing. And if there's no maturing, there's no growth, and it's an extended period of time, you're probably not in that first category. You're still, in fact, he started that section by telling them about Melchizedek and he realized he couldn't even explain to them about Melchizedek because they needed the Holy Spirit to understand the connection of Jesus and Melchizedek. And so because Jesus and Melchizedek are the only king priest in the Bible, mentioned in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and here in Hebrews. And so he goes into that third warning telling them, don't waver between the earth and the world and Jesus. Come all in. Don't waver for them between the Old Testament sacrificial system and Jesus being the high priest. Then in chapter 
10, he gave us the fourth warning. He says, don't be an apostate. An apostate is somebody who has the information and they reject it, either outright or covertly. They pose and act like they they buy in, but they don't really buy in. I think there's a lot of people like that in America. And then he goes into chapter 11. Well, at the end of chapter 10, let me backtrack just a second. He says, my righteous ones shall live by faith. They don't shrink back. And then in chapter 11, he goes through starting in Genesis with the very beginning that the invisible God created what we see. And he goes and he gives character after character unfolding the whole Old Testament to these people to say, this is what it looked like to run the race of faith. Abel, he brought the right sacrifice Enoch, he understood the way we are to relate to God. It's not just know about him, it's to know him. Noah, he put God on display to a pagan world. He didn't let the pagan world taunt him and keep him from doing what God called him to do. He obeyed even when it was unconventional. He built an ark when there was no rain. And then he mentions Abraham. Here's a guy who illustrates the whole process of faith. He was called, not because he was righteous as a pagan. He was called, and then he was tested. God's power was revealed in his life. And God said in uh, chapter 11, verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed to be called as God. He's the God of Abraham today. He's known as that, you see that often in the Bible, the God of Abraham. And then he goes into Joshua Rahab, David, Samson, Jephthah. He goes into Barak. How many of you guys, seriously, how many of you guys know the story of Barak? I, next time you get into a small group at your church or you go, just ask them, hey, do you know the story of Barak in the Old Testament? Most people don't. Barak was Judges chapter 4. Most people don't even know that story. Why is that story important? Why does the writer of Hebrews list Barak? It's not like he has this great, incredible faith story, but he lists him there. You ever think about that? Why does he list Barak? What did Barak do? Well, Barak's story is that Barak was told by the prophetess Deborah, you will have a victory against your enemies. And, he go, and she goes, go conquer. And he goes, I ain't going without you. I'm not going without you. And she goes, fine, if you don't go without me, then it ain't going to be you that kills Sisera. It will be a woman. And it was. But I'm encouraged by that because even though his faith was weak, it was still mentioned in that great hall of fame of faith. Even though he needed Deborah to go with him, he's still listed because it's not the amount or the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith. And he trusted enough to go. That's the, the whole point of every one of these. The faith is not built on our strength. It's built on the object of our faith. That's so important for us to understand because there's a lot of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers that talk about if you just have more faith. If you just have more faith, that's not the issue. It's the object of our faith, and he brings that out. But he lists all these people. Then he goes into the prophets. He doesn't even mention their name. He just gives their acts in a lion's den, Daniel, in a, a fiery pit, a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gives them all. And then he says, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1, surrounded by all these examples, he says, go run your race of faith. 
You, you have all these people that have gone before us. He says, run your race of faith. But he says, here's how you got to run it. And we looked at this last week. First of all, you got to run according to God's plan, not your plan. Most of us don't think about any plan. We just try to run. We don't plan at all. Nobody would do that with a marathon, but we try to do that with a Christian life. And a Christian life is much tougher than a marathon. And so he says, you got to run according to God's plan. We saw that last week. Then he says, you got to run according to God's purpose. Why are you even running the race? The race starts the moment you are regenerate, and it ends when you pass from this life to the next. So from between those two dots is a line, and that is your race of faith. And as you're running that race, what are people around you seeing? You have to know what your purpose is. And we looked at 2 Timothy 2.8. When Paul tells young Timothy he's struggling with the Ephesians, he's struggling to be a pastor, he's dealing with persecution. He ends up being martyred, by the way. Um, Timothy does, but he's timid. Remember he says, Timothy, God didn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a power. Remember he told him that? Well, in 2 Timothy 2.8, he says this. He says, remember Jesus Christ who died on the cross, remember that, Timothy, and the reason he died was for the elect who have not yet come into salvation. That's what he says. So Timothy, you remember him as you're doing this. Remember those people who've not yet bowed their knee to Jesus and their hearts to Jesus. Live a life of faith so they will see you and come up to you and want to know, Jay, what's different about you? Why are you like this? You know, why, why do you, Aaron, I, I don't understand why you do what you do. Tell me, what is it that drives you? Do people ever ask you that? Has anybody ever asked you, you know, Amos, why are you different? I see something different in you. I remember my friend Dawa over in India. You know what he's, the way he asked it to his roommate who was a Christian? He said, how do I get in the good man's club? And his, that guy said, what are you talking about? He says, you have to be in some kind of good man's club because you live a very different life. You don't drink, you don't gamble, you don't do all the things that I do and bring shame to my family. But that was his question. We should be having people ask us, why are we different as we run our race of faith? And that's what he says, you got to run with purpose. You got to run with purpose. As you run this race of faith. And third, he says, you got to run according to his pattern. And who is the supreme example? Jesus Christ. He perfectly ran his race of faith. He showed us from the beginning. He kept going toward the finish line the whole time. When Peter said, ain't going to happen to you. He said, get behind me. That's not where the finish line is, Peter. I'm going toward the finish line that God's plan is laid out for me. Not my plan. And so we saw that last week. Well, this week, as we look at chapter 12, 5 through 17, we're looking at training that gets us through the faith race. How would you define discipline? Because this word discipline is used in this text today 10 times in verses 5 through 11. 10 times. How would you define it? When you hear the word discipline, maybe it evokes memories like me of my dad's belt popping my rear end. Is that what you think of? That's what I think of. 
I mean, I got spanked a lot, and it hurt. It hurt. I got spanked a lot, not just by my dad, by my aunts, by my cousins, by my Sunday school teachers. They spanked me, and my dad spanked me. And he used to say what every dad says to his child, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And you look at him like, no way. As you're being, that's dumb. Dad, don't even, why are you saying that? But as you get older, you start to realize why he said what he said. Because a loving father disciplines his child. Well, let me ask you a question about the Christian life. When you think about suffering that God allows you to go through, how do you view that? Because these people that he's writing to here in chapter 12, and really the whole letter, they're suffering right now. They're going through some suffering. And he's equating their suffering to discipline. Now, when you think about suffering in your life, do you think about it in terms of discipline? Or do you think about it just in terms of, well, Satan's really attacking me? And it may be from Satan, but it still can be viewed in the context of discipline. And discipline is what wins races and gets you through a race. You have to train. If you just showed up at a marathon, Jay, 26.2 miles, or better yet, let's say a triathlon, you don't train, you just show up and go, I'm going to do it. How far out of the 112-mile bike ride are you going to do? How far out of the 26.2-mile run are you going to do? And what is it, like a 2.6-mile swim or something? Maybe a two-mile swim? If you don't train, if you don't train, you're not going to finish that race. Discipline is something we need. I remember growing up uh, playing football in high school. We had a couple of guys on the team that were really, really good athletes. One of them was a tackle. One of them was a running back. Every year they got kicked off the team for drugs. And it hurt the whole team because they weren't disciplined. Because they were so special and good athletically, the coaches would allow them to slide with different things, and they never really held them accountable to the point where then they got kicked off the team. So they never tried to step in and and help them with other things, and you could see it. They had like, you ever see athletes like that that have what special status because they're gifted and they're not held to the same standards and they're not disciplined a lot of times? And it's a terrible waste of talent. Well, there are no natural born faith racers in the kingdom. None of us are natural born. We all need training. We all need discipline. And that's what he's bringing out. Because a Christian faith race is a marathon. And so in this text today, we're going to see two things that God calls us to do as we're running this faith race. He calls us, first of all, to embrace his discipline. And second to encourage his disciples who were running with us. Embrace his discipline. Ten times that word is mentioned in 5 through 11. And then encourage his disciples in verses 12 through 17. So let's read the text and we're going to come back in the time remaining and we're going to unpack it real quick. All right, start in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. May God bless the reading of his word. Verse 5 says, And have you forgotten? Have you forgotten? Where would they have remembered it from? What's he doing? Do you remember last week when I read to you what Paul wrote to the Roman church when he says, This was written for your instruction, so that you may have hope and endure. The Old Testament, the scriptures, he's saying, have you forgotten this? He's saying, you guys obviously have not been being encouraged by remembering what God has said through his word. And then he points out what he says in Proverbs, because this passage, when he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord is a direct quote from Proverbs 3 verses 11 and 12. So as he's quoting Proverbs, if you remember back, a lot of the Proverbs were written as if from a what? A father to a son. They were written to give the son wisdom, to help the son grow. And he says first, he gives a couple of cautions here. He says, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That caution is saying, don't blow it off when it happens. When God brings discipline into your life, don't just dismiss it. But then he says, don't go to the other extreme either. He says, don't grow weary. Don't faint over it. In other words, you embrace it as being from God as a training tool in your life. In fact, the word for discipline that's used 10 times in your translation may say chastised. It's the Greek word paideia or paideia, and it means to instruct a child. That's the literal translation of it, is to instruct a child or to instruct children. 
So he gives this word discipline and he's saying, don't blow it off and don't faint over it. Embrace it. And in verse 7 to 9, he gives an encouragement for us that I think is really important. He says, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as a son. This is such a foreign concept to most Jewish people during this time. For years, they they viewed God as the Holy One, the deity that they could never have the intimacy of an Abba-Father relationship. And what's interesting is, Fathers discipline their children out of love. They want their children to grow up to be good contributors and protectors of the rest of their family. So they discipline them so they're not unruly, so they're not an embarrassment to the community, but rather they're upstanding in the community. Everybody in this room has seen undisciplined children at some point in their life. And when you see an undisciplined child, is there anybody going, oh, right, look at that kid. He's awesome. You see undisciplined children and it makes you wince. And he's saying a loving father is going to discipline. But we need to understand something. There is a difference between discipline and God's punishment. Divine discipline is very different from divine punishment. As believers, we're not in danger of God's divine punishment. All of the, when we sin, that punishment was taken by Christ 2,000 years ago. No sin will you commit that you will be punished for. You're disciplined, and there's a difference. I mean, I, I know as a kid, I viewed my spankings as punishment, and I think a lot of kids may view it that way. Why? Because it's painful. But I was listening to an interview this morning with Matthew McConaughey. He just wrote a book called Green Lights. He was talking about growing up. And you know him. He's the actor, right? He's, he's been in all these movies. But he's from Texas. And he was writing this book. And he said, man, my dad whacked me for three reasons. One, when I said I can't instead of I need help. Two, when I said I hate you to somebody. And three, when I lied. And he said, you know, I don't even think about the short-term pain that it caused because all I can think about is the good it brought into my life. It transformed me. That's what discipline does. Discipline transformed. In fact, a good definition of discipline is operating within certain parameters of the authority over you. That's what that is. So when there, there's parameters in every realm of our life, and there's an authority over that, and so discipline is operating within those parameters. And so he gives us that encouragement. And remember, Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those in Christ. You are not being punished if you sin. You're being disciplined by God. He may allow consequences to discipline you. and He may intervene and bring things into your life. But in verses 10 and 11, I think he lays out three reasons for discipline. I want to give them to you and kind of explain them. First one is correction. We're disciplined for correction. Why? When, when you see your child going to stick a screwdriver in an electrical socket, and you spank that child because you told them don't do that, and they keep going over there and you spank them again, is it because you hate your child or you don't want them to electrocute themselves? Because if he sticks it in there, it could be no more. Could, he could die. 
The spanking is meant to change the behavior of the child. It's a consequence, immediate. If it's good discipline, it will be immediate. So that the child recognizes that when I go to do this, it brings this, so I don't want to do that. And it changes his behavior. That's what discipline does. You don't change your child by putting him in time out. You don't change your child by taking away his favorite toy. The Bible speaks very clearly about a rod, the rod of discipline. And we live in a time now where, oh my gosh, if you just look on the internet and on social media, and even our kids are talking about, you know, dealing gently with our children and understanding their emotional trauma. When our kids haven't been traumatized, they've been loved. They've been cared for. Are we perfect? No, we're not perfect parents, but but we don't spare the rod. My dad beat me with a belt. And I needed to be beat with a belt. But my dad loved me. I don't look back at that and go, he was a terrible father. I don't look back at that at all. I'm so thankful that they helped discipline me to where I could even get in the Marine Corps. Because I don't think I would have been able to had they not done what they'd done. They wouldn't have taken me. Discipline changes our behavior. In fact, speaking of the Marine Corps, I remember I was in the Marine Corps going through basic training. And I was back, this was back in my days where I, I would do some things that probably shouldn't done. And so I was imitating Richard Pryor in the squad bay. We were on a break. And I didn't know that the drill sergeant was outside, eavesdropping. Because we were on break. I thought he'd gone back to the barracks. So I'm doing, everybody's cracking up. They're laughing. And he, all of a sudden, he pops in the door. He goes, so we got a comedian in here. Who's the comedian? Well, of course, she knows, candidate McCary, staff sergeant. Come on out here, comedian. I stepped outside. Why don't you drop and give me 50 right now? I did the 50. And I stood up. He said, you think you're pretty funny. No, sir. He said, you just call me a sir. I'm not no officer. I'm a staff sergeant. Get down and give me 50 more. 50 more push-ups, man. I'm just dying. And, and after I got through, I walked in. He told me, he said, I better not hear any more comedian coming out of you. I said, yes, staff sergeant. So I go in there. I didn't do any more Richard Pryor the rest of the summer. It transformed me. It was discipline. Because we're supposed to be a disciplined unit. A father disciplines his child and correction is one reason that we do that. He says it transforms our lives. It strengthens us. Listen what 1 Peter 5 says. Going over to 1 Peter 5. Starting in verse 10. He says... And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what it does. It strengthens you. It, it establishes you. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen. He said, you're not, you're not legitimate if you don't have God's discipline in your life. Paul used suffering to try to justify that he was actually a real disciple and apostle. 
In 2 Corinthians 11, he's, he's not laying out his theological degrees. He's laying out his suffering because it's the suffering that shows the discipline of a father in his life. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11, where the, they were, the Corinthians were not eating the Lord's Supper correctly, and it says some of you died, some of you were taking the Lord's Supper in vain, and you got sick. That's discipline. That's discipline for them. And it, and it was instructive to correct behavior. And that's one reason for discipline. Another reason is protection. Over in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh. But remember what he said the thorn did for him? Anybody remember what it says? He said the thorn actually made him depend on God and it kept him from being what? Prideful. That's right. It was a preventative. God had showed him all these amazing things. And so God gave him the thorn to keep him dependent. I know when we were in Israel, I was talking to one of the shepherds. And he told me that when a sheep keeps going astray and it's dangerous for the sheep, they will actually break the leg of the sheep to save the life of the sheep. Because they're afraid the sheep's going to go astray and get eaten by a predator. So they actually protect the sheep by breaking his leg. Now that doesn't sound very kind. But it's actually helpful. It's a protection. Discipline protects us. So sometimes God brings suffering into our life. And we're going, why, why, why? Well, maybe it's to protect us. It inhibits our sin. Thirdly, it's instructive for us. So it, it corrects us, it protects us, and then it instructs us. How do you say that? It informs our perspective. A great example of this is in the Old Testament in the book of Job. Now, if I'm sure, I hope everybody here knows the story of Job. But just as a quick reminder, Job was a guy who was just living life, putting God on display. He was running the race of faith well. He was blessed in his family. He cared about his kids. He would sacrifice for his kids because he thought maybe they weren't doing something right. And Satan uh, is in front of God and God goes, hey, look at Job, check him out. He's one of my, he's one of my kids. And, and Satan goes, oh yeah, he just loves you because you protect him so well. And you, you know, he never has to deal with any real issues. So God said, okay, you can take everything, but don't touch his life and don't touch him. Took his kids, took his house, took his money, took everything. And Job still prayed him, praised him. Job still praised him, said, I came into the world naked and I'll leave naked. And so Satan comes back, he says, hey, have you checked out my kid? How good he's doing? He, he, he gets it. Yeah, but he only gets it because you're not hurting him. You hurt him, he'll curse you. Every man will curse to save his own soul or his own skin. And so God says, fine, you can afflict him, but you don't take his life. What does that show you about God? That God's sovereign. You are immortal until God says, I'm going to bring you home. Satan can't do anything to you. No human being can do anything to you unless God allows it. And so if he's allowing suffering for whatever reason, then maybe it's corrective. Maybe it's, you know, protective. Maybe 
He just wants to inform you like he did Job. Listen to what it says in Job 42. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You see, what Job got was a clear vision of God. He said, I I just used to have heard about you. Now I see you. He had a better perspective of who God was and who he was. And I think far too often we have an overinflated view of ourselves and an underinflated view of God. And, and sometimes suffering and discipline will reveal that to us. Well, not only does he call us to embrace our discipline, he calls us to encourage his disciples in the faith race with us. He says, going back to Hebrews, he says, therefore, because of this, Lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. He's talking about strengthening one another. He goes on to say, pursue peace and holiness with one another. And then he says at the end, he uses Esau, but he says, don't let a branch rise up, a bitter root rise up. He's quoting there from Deuteronomy, somebody that's going to mislead. These are all protected. These are ways to encourage brothers in the race. Three ways to encourage there. They're all quotes from the Old Testament. How many of you guys have heard of Julie Moss? Some of you may remember the story after I share it. In 1982, 15 feet away from the finish line, Julie Moss is a young girl in her 20s running her first triathlon in Hawaii. She was 15 feet away from winning and beating people that had run, you know, triathlons before Ironman triathlons. Fifteen feet away, she went down. Her body shut down, completely shut down. Twenty million people watching on, and her body shuts down fifteen minutes before the finish line, or fifteen feet before the finish line. She pulled herself up. She was so far ahead. She pulled herself up, and like a robot. She tried to go and she went down again, pulled herself up and on her elbows, she's trying to get to the finish line. She went down again. She collapsed like three times trying to make that last 15 feet. Guys, that's not far. That's five yards. She lost bowel control. And and she's crying. She can't. Just get her body to do what she wants to do. The other woman who was behind her passes her. And because the rules state, if you touch somebody, I mean, you can't have any help to do anything. Swimming, riding the bike, or running. So she couldn't help her, so she just ran onto the finish line. But Julie kept crawling with her hands till she got to the finish line. She finished second and she finished the race. No, I mean, that, that, that was one of the most watched 
things. It's been replayed so many times because it was an incredible display of determination to get there. But what was sad to me was that the girl ran by and didn't stop and help her. There has been a girl who did that one time in another race, but this girl didn't. And that's a lot like the Christian life. We're running the Christian race of faith and there's guys who are on their knees who are falling and we're just going by them. We're not saying here, let me help you. And what he's saying here is you have to pick them up. Help them get to the finish line. When they're falling down, lift up the droopy. Lift up those that are weak. Help them get to the finish line. Strengthen one another. He's quoting from Proverbs there. We, we should be helping people do that. And from Isaiah, that's where those quotes come from. Isaiah chapter 35 and Proverbs 4. But it made me think of Peter. Luke 22, where Jesus says, Hey, Peter, Satan's going to sift you. He's asked to sift you. And when you're strengthened, what does he say? Go strengthen your brothers. Guys, that's why authenticity is so important in a group like this in relationship. So that I can look Tim in the eye and I can say, man, Tim, I was really struggling. You look like you're struggling today. Can I help you? Because I've been there. Not that I come with superiority, but I come with a brotherhood that says, I want to help you up and we're going to finish this race together. We do everything together. And that's what he's saying. To encourage disciples... Three ways to encourage. Strengthen one another. The second way, he says, is pursue peace and holiness with one another. And Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, let your reasonableness be known. Right now in our election, how much reasonableness is being known by believers? Are we, are we letting our reasonableness be known? Listen, we can stand up for what we believe in, in love. We can do that. And be reasonable about it. Colossians 3, Paul says, put on compassion, kindness. Pursue peace. It's The word strive is there. Strive for the peace and holiness for which no one will see God if you don't have it. But then in 15 to 17, he talks about protecting one another. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 29. He talks about this bitter root that rises up and misleads people. And then he mentions... Um, Esau. And what's interesting to me about this is he talks about sexual immorality. If you go back and read in Genesis 25 and 27, do you see anything about Esau and sexual immorality? You don't back in Genesis. But why is it here then? Why, why does he link those two together? Well, what did Esau struggle with? What was his sin? What, what, what moved him? It was pure, just animal desire, just pure reaction, no thought for what was right. It was pure reaction. I'm hungry. I want this. I'm going to take that. Does that affect us as men today? That's why he's saying well, you've got to protect one another. Don't be like immoral Esau who sold his birthright for a pot of stew. We do it for far less. You know, he uses when he says, 
Look to in verse 15. See to it. That word there is episkopos, which we get the word episcopalian from. It, it means to see over. Pay attention to. We need to pay attention to our brothers. Dr- help lift up the drooping hands and strengthen the weak knees. Pursue peace and holiness. Those words are together. They're not separate. They're not two separate things. It's peace and holiness together and protect one another. So as we close, I want to just ask you, how am I responding to God's discipline in my life? How am I responding? And second, who am I encouraging? Am I encouraging anybody? It's very clear from what he says there that we are to be encouraging his disciples in the race. So, Father, thank you for this time today and the reminder of your word that in our race of faith that we will be disciplined because you love us. You're a father to us. Help us to embrace it, not to faint and not to just blow it off but lord let us embrace it for what it is corrective protective and instructive thank you for caring for us so deeply that you will do whatever it takes to draw us to the finish line faithfully we love you for that and i pray for us as men lord that we would come alongside each other and not pass each other by but Help strengthen the feeble hands and the weak knees. Give us eyes to see those and give us compassionate, kind hearts to help our brothers. We love you. Amen.